He turns red. I will tell people that we're we're actually not starting for two more minutes, as long as it turns red. Wow, I don't know what that was, but it must have been like a piece of metal or something in there. Wow. Okay, it is on. And uh, we're not going to start yet, just because we have two more minutes, but we needed to test the streaming today. So if you're watching online, we'll get started at 5 o'clock, which is in four and a half minutes or so. Anyway, um, uh, let's see here. You know, we're supposed to today, somebody sent me an email and they asked me to pray for somebody. I wrote it down. We're live. Somebody uh, wrote me an email and asked me to pray. And I wrote it down for church, but they didn't write it down today. Somebody that had a, a big need and they asked me to write it down. And I can't remember. Oh, I, you know, I get these emails at 4 o'clock in the morning and I cut and paste and put them on the, uh, the thing for Sunday church. But anyway, we'll wait. Let's see here. We still have two minutes before we get started. But that's all right. I tell you what, here come uh, uh, Pat and Cindy, and then after that, we're just going to get started. That's, we'll just wait until they get in here. Hello, how are you guys doing there? Good, good, good. Let's see here, we'll put this right there. Which um, letter are we on? We are on Dalit, which is verse 25, 925, 100, Psalm 119, verse 25. And, yeah, and uh, we'll... Uh, Move that over there. Dalit. Go ahead and read that and we'll get started. Okay. Dalit. The door, move, hang, entrance. I am laid low in the dust. Preserve my life according to your word. I recounted my ways and you answered me. Teach me your decrees. Let me understand the teaching of your precepts. Then I will mediate on your wonders. My soul is weary with sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Give me, keep me from deceitful ways. Be gracious to me through your law. Chosen the way of truth. Set my heart on your I hold fast to your statuses. Statutes, O Lord, do not let me put to shame. I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. That's one. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come here this this evening and to uh, get into your word and just thank you for the opportunity to do this. It is just such a great and precious word that you've given us. And uh, Lord, we have uh, a holiday coming up in the next couple days, which is a, a celebration of our Lord Jesus. And we want to uh, just take the time to uh, remember all of what you did for us from your birth all the way through until your uh, crucifixion and the glorious resurrection and we would pray that we would be good stewards of that message over this next couple of days and maybe there'll be somebody that needs to hear that message for the first time in their life and maybe receive it and we also have a new year coming just just another week away and we would ask that you would be with us in that help us to be uh responsible with our time and to be sure to evangelize as much as we can with whatever time we have been given and we do look forward to 2017 and we're looking forward to maybe a speedy exit up out of here if it's your will and if it's not we'll continue on to uh, do what we can for your glory thank you again for this uh, chance to meet here tonight and we love you we praise you and we exalt you and we do so in jesus name amen, amen.
Got that stuck, didn't I? Hey, Tom, how we doing there? We got started two minutes early today because no, no, we were no. testing the streaming. So you weren't late. We were just early. But uh, anyway, let's see here. We got uh, oh, we got a pain in the back today, and I can't really move around much. So let's see here. We are today. We are in uh, Romans. We're starting in verse two fourteen. Fourteen. Yeah. So if you want to get up to Romans two verse fourteen and. We'll try not to uh, speed through it too much today like we have been. We don't want to... Last week I missed um, like two... You missed two verses last week. That's right. We, we, we went a little little quick through there. We don't want to okay. do that. 14. <laughs> Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature's things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. That's right. Okay, uh, I'm going to go back to 12, and I'm going to reread just so we have context. Sure. For as many as sinned without the law will also perish without the law. As many as sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. And that brings in verse 14, which you just read. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. I have a question. Yes. My book has beginning of 14 and going all the way through the beginning of 16 in parentheses. Um, yeah, that's probably correct. Verse 13 starts with parentheses here, and you said it goes all the way through what? Uh, beginning of 16. The beginning of End 16. Of yeah, that's correct. Same thing here. It's a parenthetical thought because you've got 12 for as many have sinned without the law. Um, uh, without the law perish, without the law, and then you get all the way down to uh, verse 16, in the days when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. So what he's doing is he's inserting a thought in between that one continuous thought. So it's a parenthetical thought. So uh, who's that back there? That's good. Oh, that's Elaine. How are you? Hi. Doing all right? Where's Paul? Um, Oh, he's coming. Okay. All right. All right. Yeah, well, oh boy, hope he didn't. He's too busy witnessing. That would be good. If he's witnessing, that's good. Okay, so here's my comments on 14. Paul now introduces a supporting argument for what he just said in verse 13 by stating for when. As I said, that's why we go back a couple verses. You want to have the context because a verse taken out of context is a Pretext. pretext. Thank you. And a pretext, if you don't know what that means, is a lie. So if you take a verse out of context... Um, and, you know, a thousand verses in the Old Testament, which people say, um, just you could go through them. Jeremiah 29, and you can go to 2 Chronicles, or 1 Chron- 2 Chronicles 7, 14. You know, it's nice to say, but it doesn't apply in context. And so we're using a verse which is not appropriate. And I, I'm, let's go to that one really quickly before I get into Romans, just so people know what I'm talking about. A verse taken out of context is a pretext. And we'll go to 2 Chronicles 7, 14. Everybody has heard this one. Maybe some of us in here have cited it in this context, and it's not correct. Um, I'm, first, I'm going to go to verse 13, so you have a full sentence. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, if my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, and, uh, pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. That's not speaking of America. That's not speaking of England. That's not speaking of anybody but Israel. That is the context. My people. In America, the Christians are only God's people, right? Well, if Christians aren't in charge of the nation, then it doesn't apply because the Christians, think of um, uh, Syria, right? 
there are Christians in Syria. They don't run Syria. It has nothing to do with those people humbling themselves and praying to God that he will heal their land. It's a Muslim nation. You have to keep things in context. I'm not saying that Christians shouldn't pray for that. I'm not saying that we shouldn't ask the Lord to honor uh, you know, the few people that are praying in that land. But that's not what it's speaking of. It's not the context of the United States of America. Although America was established on Christian values, and it would be nice if we did return to the Lord, and he would heal us in a sense. But that it does not apply to us. And we cannot take verses out of context and say, I'm claiming this in Jesus' name. It doesn't work that way. Yes, sir? The land. The last word in that. The land. The land. Israel is a land people. All That's right. All blessings was them to the land. That's right. It's it's Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26. It is tying the people with the land. Yeah. If the people are obedient, the land will be prosperous, and the people will live in the land. If they're disobedient, the land will start not being pro, uh, you know, prosperous within the land, and eventually exile. Okay, then the Sabbaths will come in and the land will have the rest from the Sabbaths that weren't observed, etc. It all is dealing with Israel. It's not dealing with the United States of America, so we can't make that, um, uh, that leap there. Anyway, let's get into Romans. Didn't mean to divert, but I just wanted people to understand what a pretext is. It's a lie. It's saying that I am claiming something that doesn't belong to me. Okay, and we can't do that. Um, okay, verse 214. Um, to clarify, because he's starting for when, which means it's dependent on verse 13, to clarify he has made a claim against the Jews who trust in merely being the stewards of the law while failing to meet the law. We're Jews. We're okay. And that goes back once again to Jeremiah, where they say the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They're relying on the temple being there for God to show them favor when they're not being obedient to the very God who's given them the law, which is what the purpose of the temple is, is to be stewards of the law. They are not being obedient even though they're Jews, and they can't claim that they're obedient to God. Anyway, um, now he will demonstrate that what he said is correct. For when Gentiles, all who are not Jews, anybody who is not a Jew is a Gentile. Those are the two major distinctions within the, the Bible, Jew and Gentile, and that does not change in the church age. Either you are Jew or you are a Gentile. The church is not the Jews. So much for R.C. Sproul, which I'll read you a quote from him probably in, uh, I don't know, sometime early next year, and uh, uh, where he actually claims that the church are the Jews. And I can't even imagine that brain pan. That would, he, Paul never makes that leap. Never. He never says, he always makes a distinction between Israel and the church. Always. There's only one verse that you may be able to justify by twisting it, which is Galatians 6, uh, something, um, the Israel of God, anyway. And they say, well, that's us. It's not. Israel is the Jews. The Israel of God is the Jews that are obedient to Christ. That's what he was speaking of. But we won't get into that until we get there uh, when I make that quote. I don't but, remember where Paul said it, but he said Jews, Gentiles, and the church. It's in one of his... Right. So the, the church is a separate part of Gentiles, but the church is comprised of Jew and Gentile. That's right. Okay, so um, I'm going to read that again. Now he will demonstrate that what he said is correct. For when Gentiles, all who are not Jews, who do not have the law, which is the written code which is entrusted to the Jewish people by God, that is the law, by nature do the things in the law. The Gentiles do those things. They obey what the law prescribes, such as... Um, do not murder, right? That's a part of the law of Moses. Do not murder. 
Although not having the law, they, they say, I'm not going to murder somebody because it was given only to the nation of Israel. It wasn't given to any other group of people on the planet except Israel there at Sinai. Okay? If they do that, they are, as he says, a law to themselves. They have become doers of the law, and thus they prove his claim of verse 13. Let me read you 13 again. For the hearers of the law, uh, it, for not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. The Jew is not justified by the law unless he does the law. And as I said in the sermon a couple weeks ago, circumcision doesn't set them off as um, uh, God's people and make them holy. In fact, what it does is it um, uh, highlights the fact that they need to be holy. Okay. In other words, circumcision is a badge saying that I am giving you this responsibility now. And it highlights their need to be responsible. It doesn't somehow diminish it. But they think because I am a Jew and I'm circumcised, I'm right before God. They think I have a righteousness of my own, and that is incorrect. Anyway, um, there is no culture which has ever existed that was devoid of a moral law. Every culture is based on some type of a moral law. Although the laws are enacted in varying degrees of strictness and enforced in varying degrees of severity, there is found to be a universal standard of moral right and wrong, which is written on our hearts and it is imprinted on our consciences. When these internal codes are violated, a sense of guilt is the result, hopefully. Now, Paul talks about people searing their consciences to the point where they don't feel that anymore. But when societies are established, they are established based on a conscience. You can't have a law unless there's a conscience for it. Nobody's going to write a law, don't steal, unless somebody has a conscience that I have been offended by stealing or that somebody should feel guilty for having stolen. That's why we have laws, is because there's something ingrained in people that says that's wrong. And every culture that I've been in, I don't know about you, well, how many of you have been overseas? Every culture I've been in finds it an offense to steal. Now, that doesn't mean that stealing isn't overlooked, but they have a law that says don't steal, okay? If you go to uh, you know Southeast Asia, people will steal right from you, and it's treated kind of nonchalantly. But they have laws on the book that say don't steal. And if the people are actually caught, then they're prosecuted for it. Muslim nations, what do they do if you're caught stealing? No, 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 no. He raised his left hand. They don't cut off. That's right. They cut off the right hand. Now, why do they do that? That's right. This is your toilet paper in a Muslim nation. That is exactly right. Now you've got to eat with your left hand, which is... The one that you, that's true. I mean, when I was in Malaysia, that was it. You know, you never ship with your left hand because you'd offend somebody. Hey, look at who's visiting for the next, how long are you going to be here? Three, four, five months? How long are you going to be here? Five months. Wow. Good to have you here, Rick. Wow, wow, wow. Isn't this nice? We're in Romans 2.14 right now. So um, they all have these uh, laws. It's imprinted on our consciences. When the internal codes are violated, a sense of guilt is the result. In essence, the Gentiles are stewards of God's law, even if not written in detail in the form which was given to Israel. Okay? It is important to note that the word translated when in no way implies that Paul is arguing it will take place. Instead, it is a conjecture which links the two thoughts. The reason that this is important is because even though obedience to this internal law may exist, it doesn't mean that it exists perfectly or that it will be executed lawlessly. Okay, you've got a, a society that has don't steal, 
Well, Israel had certain things within the context of stealing. This society may not have some of those precepts. Okay, um, Murder. Here's a good one. In Israel, when somebody was killed in Israel, and it was out in the country, does anybody know what they would do um, to take away the guilt of the people? Take them to the city closest city. No, 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 no. Not, not. There, you got it. It's not the city of refuge. This is if somebody's just dead out in the, the country and they find a dead body and they know it was murdered. What did they do? Take them to the closest city and they would examine the person. Well, they don't know, know who the person is. Well, to they find would, out if... if they go to the leaders of the, the yeah, city. You got it. Like a judge, judge thing. Tribunal. Yeah. That's right. And then what would they do? They'd go out over the people and they'd break the neck of a donkey and they'd say, we are guiltless of this crime. Let it not be imputed to our city. And the Lord says he would forgive them. And that's all they needed to do. But that was a part of the code of murder. Some cultures have different things within there. They may not be as restrictive as Israel or as specific as Israel. And so that's what I'm saying. When he says for when, it does not necessarily mean exactly. It just means that they have a code of murder, but it's not all the details. But I'm glad you remember that. Very, I didn't think anybody would get that. And you were thinking of if somebody murdered and it was unintentionally, that, that's right. That would be the city of refuge. That's different. But if there was just a dead body out in the middle, they would go to the nearest town, whichever one was nearest. And you know what? What does that mean? That means that a murderer got off scot-free. That's right. But the Lord still healed the land. He still forgave them of the blood guilt. And that shows you the gracious nature of God because he didn't have to do that. He gave them a provision to say that I will forgive the blood guilt if you take this action. So anyway, um, and we may have the details a little off, but that's basically it right there. And that was off the top of my head, so sorry about that. Um, <clears throat> let's see here. So um, it's uh, when I said that, um, even more, the Bible consistently implies that it won't, that it won't be executed flawlessly, in other words. And the reason why is all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. None of us are going to perfectly execute the law. All have sinned. And if all within a society have sinned, then that means the society itself is not free from sin. All have sinned. Every person in the society, so the whole the society as a whole, is guilty before God. <clears throat> Excuse me. What this means, then, is that no person will be saved by the light that he has received. Nobody. For the Jew, it was the law of Moses. And for the Gentile, it is the through the internal law of the heart and the conscience. Instead, he will be judged by that light. Greater judgment for the one with greater light. And hence, we have the example of Israel all the way through the Bible. They have more light than the Gentiles. They will receive stricter judgment. And Jesus even said that when he walked among them. The light merely brings condemnation in varying degree. That's all that it does. It is Christ who brings salvation in its fullness. This concept of greater judgment for greater knowledge is hinted at in James 3 verse 1, which is, you know, it's applied to teachers, but it's exactly what he's talking about. So let me go there really quickly and read it to you, which I could quote it to you, but I'm not going to because then I'll blow it. I don't want to do that. My brethren... <clears throat> Let not many of you become teachers. Why? They're teachers. You're supposed to have greater knowledge as a teacher. I was talking to somebody about this on the phone just yesterday. Just yesterday, I was talking to him about it, and he called me up and he asked me a question about something from the Bible, and I gave him an answer. And all night long, I stewed over that answer that I gave him. 
And I called him back up and I said, listen, I want to give you a more thorough answer and I want to talk this through with you. And the reason why is because of this verse right here is because I, I was so concerned that I may not have given him a sufficient answer and I, I was talking to the Lord about it literally all night long. I, I kept waking up and thinking, I, I want to make sure that he understood what I was saying, that I didn't say something that was, because, you know, he called me and I'm busy and I just whatever. So, um, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Greater light means greater judgment. That's all that means. And as a teacher, you are claiming that you have greater light. And woe to you if you don't. And I'm not saying that all teachers are, you know, I'm just simply saying that if you're a guy and you say, I'm going to go teach the Bible, and you don't have any concept of what you're teaching, that is a very, very terrifying place to be before the Lord. Very. I, I, I just would, you know, shudder to think of people that just go out and arbitrarily start teaching the Bible without understanding what they are teaching. All right? Somebody has wrong doctrine, incorrect doctrine, it's sin. Either R.C. Sproul is right on, on uh, replacement the theology, or he is not. Either I'm right on dispensationalism, or I'm not. That's all there is to it. Either you are right or you are wrong. And if you are teaching incorrect doctrine, it is sin. And I am 100% convinced that dispensationalism is correct. And that's why I, I, I almost get frustrated. It's such a wise and understanding person teaching something that is wrong. But he's got it in his head and he's not going to change. And he's probably saying the same thing in his class about dispensationalists right now. I don't understand how they can be so stupid. I don't understand how they can completely blow that. But God does have a plan for Israel. And that plan includes a future, and the church is an insert. And I, I, I just I, I can't see any other option in there. I've looked at every side. I've list, I, I read Table Talk every single morning of my life. Every day I read Table Talk, and I get replacement theology instruction from there and I analyze it and I think could I be wrong on this could I be wrong on this could I every single day but I always come back to dispensationalism because I know that God has a plan for the Jews anyway let's get back to um, greater judgment James 3 1 although James is speaking to those who would presume to be teachers the idea rings true with what Paul is telling us about in Romans okay greater um, light means greater judgment that's all it means. The only thing that can bring salvation is special revelation of God, meaning Jesus Christ. For the Jews, it was looking forward. We know Messiah is coming. We have faith that God has a plan. And, you know, each year they sacrificed at the temple. It was a temporary thing. That sermon last week, I know it was very complicated, and a lot of people probably went away scratching their head, but it defines so clearly what is going on in the world, is that the law was used as a stepping stone to bring us to Christ. And everything about it is showing us the insufficiency of the law of Moses. And that's why it's so hard to understand how people keep wanting to bring the law back in. <clears throat> Even with something like tithing, you are bringing the law back in when you preach tithing. And, you know, somebody was talking to me, just who was it? Um, email. Somebody emailed me and he uh, was talking about you know, that I preach against tithing. I say it's under the law. It has nothing to do with the dispensation of grace. And he said that uh, uh, Les Feldick came down to his church and the pastor was, you know, a, a tither. He, he preached tithing. He went on and on about it all the time. And Les Feldick says, you're wrong. It's under the law. And uh, the guy uh, left and the pastor eventually gave up on tithing. He said, I have to agree, Les was right. He studied it, he thought about it, and honest, a man of integrity, 
realized that he had been instructed wrong, and so he dropped tithing. And guess what happened? He got more money. He 20% more without ever mentioning tithing again. So, yeah, absolutely, because it's not they a precept. They were cheerful when they weren't being bad. Oh, absolutely. You badger somebody about money every week, what's going to happen? That's right. So, hey, Charlie, what's... You've talked about a lot, and I think you've talked about when I've been here, but tell me in a brief minute what dispensation means or what is it? Dispensation is an outcropping of God's redemptive plan. In other words, and we talked about it just a week ago, and you weren't here, so I'm not going to talk about it again. I'm kidding. No, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. I have no problem. Uh, the first dispensation was innocence. The people were in the Garden of Eden. They had no knowledge of good and evil. All right? The second dispensation was um, conscience. They now have a conscience, but they're allowed to go without anything other than their conscience to guide them, and they blow it. Every single dispensation ends with failure and judgment, every single one of them. The next one after conscience, um, when did conscience end? With the ark. Right? The world was judged. They couldn't live by their conscience. The world destroyed all but eight people. Okay, so each one of them ends with the next one is um, government. The Lord gives the people a government and says, now you can go do this. Then comes the law. Then comes and the dispensation of the law is going on with one group of people while government is still going on for all the other people of the world. Okay, the law only applied to Abraham. Uh, or promise, I'm sorry, promise to Abraham, and then after that was the law. So you've got government for all of the world, but in that stream you have the um, uh, promise to Abraham, then the law, and then they merge in the dispensation of grace. We are now in the dispensation of grace. And Jew is the Jews are on the out, whereas before all the rest of the world was out. The Jews rejected Christ, and so individually they have to come to Christ and become, as you mentioned earlier, a part of the church. Okay? What's going to happen, though? The church is going to get raptured out. The dispensation is going to go back to the final seven years of the law where they are going to come under the understanding that the law couldn't save them at all. They need Christ, and then Christ will return to them when they call on him. And the last dispensation, millennium. millennium. That's right. So that's the seven dispensations. It's an outcropping of God's redemptive plans for man so that man can understand his need for him in every dispensation. Okay. Um, let's see here. Um, all will be fairly judged by the light they have received, and none will be able to accuse God of unfairness. And that's what's really important there. Is and I talked about that maybe two weeks ago. Is that you can't stand before God and say that's not fair. I wasn't given the light that Israel was. Israel was given more light, and they're going to be judged more heavily, not less heavily. Whatever God does, it is perfectly fair. Nobody's going to be able to accuse him of being un righteous. And unfortunately, that's what especially liberal churches dwell on. They dwell on the fact that implicitly God is unrighteous. And they do it by introducing, well, what about the poor African kid that never heard of Jesus? And, you know, uh, the buzzards were eating the baby out in the middle of the desert. And what, what about that baby? Everybody that existed before Jesus. And they th tried to throw all these things in here. But God is showing us that he has placed everybody in a perfect spot for them to pursue him. And it wouldn't make any difference if that person that is over there in, you know, Zimbabwe in 532 A.D. was in New York City because you go to New York City and how many people are saved, right? It proves that it doesn't make any difference where you are placed in the world. Very few will seek after the truth of God, all right? He put them in the most propitious place for them to do so with the light that he gives and none seek after God, none. And that's why Jesus is so important for us is because 
if we are willing to call on him, he will set aside all of the things that we've done wrong. But anyway, there is no pointing the finger at God when it's done. All mouths will be stopped before him, and every tongue will be silenced. In the end, all people deserve God's what? All people. Wrath and condemnation. Every single person that was ever born, we were born in Adam, which means we were born in sin. Okay, and I talked about that in the sermon last week. Because I am in Adam, I sinned potentially because I was already in Adam when he was created. Every person that's ever existed was in him when he created him. And therefore, he stands as the federal head of man. Whatever he does, all men follow after him in that same condemnation. Okay, That's why when a president makes a decision in America, all Americans may fall under some type of judgment because of that man's decision. Another nation may come in and wage war against us because of one decision by our federal head. Thank goodness that God gave us another federal head, which is Jesus. And we can move from Adam to Jesus. And we can go from being sin-filled to being sinless. And I don't mean sinless in this life. I mean positionally sinless before God. Yes, sir. In Christ is one of Paul's favorite. In Christ. I don't know how many times it's written, but a lot. 8,322,907. Okay, now, back, back, back up to the Jews. Deuteronomy was the second law. It was to those children that had been out right. there for the 40 years. And then he said, I, what I want you to do from now on is every seven years you bring everybody together and read, read the so, law. So you don't forget what I've told you to do. Right. So, you know, he had it all set up. He had it all set up. What does that tell you, though? Every time I read that verse that you just said about every seven years you're to come down to Jerusalem and you're re to read the law to everybody, what does that tell you? I'm talking about you personally. You have to read your Bible. Yeah, but, <laughs> but more than that, because they're getting their Bible every right. seven years. Right. I can't go a day. I cannot go a day without reading this book. And I think those people were only required to hear it once every seven years. So that's my personal well, thing. I, every time I read it, I think, how? There's a lot of things they could only hear it. Every well, that's right. Years, you know? right. But I'm just saying that I, to me, that's what I think. That's my personal thought about that verse is I can't imagine a society going with hearing the law once every seven years. Don't you think that somebody had it tucked away someplace at their house? Well, if, they, if somebody had a copy of it, well, it was very expensive. Also, but. Okay, even with the Psalm 119 that we read, I mean, a lot of it was, was memorized. A lot that's of people right. would memorize Large swaths Portion, of it. Portions of it. That's right. The Levites right. might know it, and they could tell these people. But mm -hmm. now, talk about being able to manipulate a little yeah, area. Right. I'm the guy that's the steward of the law in this town. and mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, go ahead. Yes. Well, I was just going to say a similar thing, that probably a lot of people had learned the whole book of Genesis, and they told it around this campfire at night and passed yep. it down to their kids. Yep. And maybe they had learned the whole book of Exodus, and... Passed it down, but certainly a lot of the psalms were memorized and sung and chanted. Absolutely. Right. And to, to back that up with history was that uh, there was all the talk about, you know, the Old Testament has been passed by word of mouth, they used demonics and blah, 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 and all of a sudden, poof, the Dead Sea, Dead scroll sea Scrolls show out. up. It's like, they oh. did a good job with the Bible has verified itself time and time and time again. It is it is God's sure word, and we don't need to worry: do we have the right word or not? Well, but uh, some of the translations are some of the translations. But once again, man, God has allowed man to handle His word. Anytime man's hands get onto something, it will have a taint in it. But that's why He has the Septuagint. 
That's why he has the Dead Sea Scrolls. That's why he has the Hebrew Scriptures. Is That's why we can go to those various sources and we can determine which is correct. Why does the Latin Vulgate say something different than the Masoretic text? Mm -hmm. The Latin Vulgate was trans translated directly out of the Hebrew by Jerome, and it predates the Masoretic text. And we know that the Masoretic text has errors in it. It has things that were fudged by the people that did it, such as um, Isaiah, the 22nd Psalm, a portion of Genesis, we know that they changed words in there. They manipulated it. And it's good that we have these other sources to show us those four agree, these three don't, or this one doesn't in those three areas. We know that those three are wrong. Yeah. We know that. Then we have Charlie on Thursday night. Uh, Charlie on Thursday night. And I try to check those sources. I try to check. And once again, how do we know where there is a deviation in our Bible of a certain manuscript in your footnotes. Always read the footnotes. I've said that at least 10 million times. Forget commentaries. Read the footnotes because the footnotes are where the information is. And the footnotes will tell you why the King James Version translators went away from the Masoretic text in this one verse because they are using the Masoretic text for their their translation, right? But then they don't use it in this verse. Why? Because instead of saying they pierced my hands and my feet, the Masoretic text says, like a lion, my hands and my feet. It doesn't make any sense at all. And they know that's wrong because this one, this one, and this one all say they pierced my hands and my feet. This one right here happens to say like a lion, my hands and my feet. And they say, we know that's not right. Somebody manipulated that to hide Jesus, right. to hide the crucifixion so, of Christ. Imagine extra burden on a teacher. Oh, absolutely. If you're a scribe or whoever it was who said, no, 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 change that to like a line. Can you imagine that? Yeah, the light that they already had sitting in front of them, mm -hmm. and then they went and ma manipulated it. And there are also, there are what are called not just changes in text themselves, but they also have um, margin notes within certain uh, translations uh, or um, uh, manuscripts of the Bible. And the margin note will say, we think that this means this, or we we uh, are going by this text because, and so margin notes are as important for the scribes of those documents as our footnotes are for us. They give us information, and information is what God wants us to pursue. Information, which leads to doctrine, and doctrine re leads to right living before the Lord. And that's why burying your head in the sand and saying, I'm just going to follow this group of people that say this will always lead in a bad end. Always. Don't trust people. Don't trust Charlie Garrett. Don't trust anybody. Information. The more information that you have, the better off you are going to be when you read the Bible. Read your footnotes. That is information. I'll read you a couple footnotes here just so you know what I'm talking about. No commentary in this Bible. But this one says, verse 116, NU text omits of Christ. So we know that one text has of Christ. And then the, the one that uh, your NIV is based on won't have the word of Christ in there. Um, uh, what's another one? 129. NU text omits sexual immorality. So they've dropped that out. Why did they do that? Was it a scribal error? Can they attribute it to it being in a different verse? Oh, well, there it's in this verse, but it's not in this one. That means his eye probably went up one paragraph by accident, and he wrote it here instead of here. There are a million ways of determining why there is a change in a text. And sometimes it is as easy as simply looking at the text around it and saying, oh, I see what they did. They had a, There are terms for every single type of scribal error you can name. 
it is a study that you would not believe. It'll make your head hurt, but that is information there. And if you can understand scribal works and how we got to that particular change in this text, then we don't have to be belligerent about it. We can say, I can see why this happened. It wasn't intentional. It was this type of a mistake, or this type, or this type. It's a wonderful study. Let's go on. Yes? All right. So, I hear it a lot. So the Bible has errors in it. No. Go ahead. Exactly. So how do you defend, then, that that... Well, that one goes into this study, and I did this one time, and I can do it again. I'm not going to do it right now because I, I want to prepare for it. But we'll go just really quickly to answer your question. The first one is that there is no doctrinal change of any moment throughout all of the Bible. There's nothing that says that doctrine is now missing because this text says this and this text is this. We always, in every text, have the blood of Christ. In every text, we have the, the, the Trinity. In every text, we have... You know, uh, all, all of it, all of the major core doctrines, and there is nothing in there that would be harmful to understanding sound theology. You might get off on, uh, you know, a, a little tangent if you don't have this verse or this verse, or these two verses are reversed. You know, verse 16 becomes 17 in this text. That happens, okay? But it doesn't change substantially the intent of Scripture, okay? But <clears throat> you can say you have errors. We'll do this just really quickly. Let me erase this. And this is just one and many of you have seen this before, but this will just show you. Okay. I'm going to write a couple sentences, and then this is just one. There are thousands and thousands of ways of finding errors in the Bible. We have 5,686 Greek manuscripts, and it's probably more than that now because that was eight years ago, but we've got all these Greek manuscripts, and this one will have this thing, this one will have this thing, and how do you figure out what is the correct rendering? Okay, one thing about Greek manuscripts is that uh, you have got minuscule and majuscule writing. In other words, it's either all in small letters or it's all in big letters, and they don't have any spacing. So sometimes you can write a sentence in English, and if you don't use any spacing, all of a sudden these, this word and this word together will now form a different word here. And so you have a sentence that says blah, 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 and this one says blah, blah, blah. It'll say... Because the words are run together, and you don't know, is he saying this word or that word? Okay, before I go on, we got three or four more coconuts. If you want them, take them when you leave. Okay, I just saw them, so. Um, okay, um, I, uh, I, okay, this is my favorite one, because nobody's ever going to miss this. All right, okay, we've got that. Now, this is. And then we have this that says... What's that say? Sergio's doing something with that thing. I don't know what he's doing. <laughs> he's zooming in on you. Okay, well, whatever he's doing, I heard it doing it. Okay, and the next one says... Um, All right, we could do this all day, but you get the point. All right, you got to scribe. The Hebrew scriptures were written very meticulously. They were written letter by letter by letter. They had certain rituals that they would follow as they uh, wrote out a copy of the Bible. And the Masoretes were so careful with it that they would actually count. Masoret means to count. They would actually count every letter. And if it was off by one letter, they'd take the whole manuscript and throw it away. 
They were very careful about counting every letter of the Word of God. And um, uh, I'll show you something else very quickly. Anyway, but we'll do this first. Okay, one copy at a time. Everything is very carefully and methodically done. In the Greek, it's just the opposite. So before I go on the Hebrew, we have this methodical body of things. And if this text and this one are missing by a couple of letters, for example, that's the letter Dalit, okay? This is the letter Resh. They look almost the same. And when you're writing, sometimes, so if you look in um, the book of Genesis, you're going to see the name Dodanim, and elsewhere, the same guy in Chronicles might be called Roda, Rodanim instead of Dodanim, because somebody made a scribal error. And we know that's a scribal error. It's not that the guy changed his name one letter. It's that a scribe made a difference. Here's another one. You've got Beit, right? And you've got Kaf. And they're so close, especially when you're writing, you can't tell them apart. So scribal errors will come in that way. That's one way that you'll have scribal errors. But in the Hebrew, that's very limited. And normally, um, they know exactly what the original Hebrew should be because of the care that's given. In the Greek, you had scribes that were not really scribes. They did it kind of like uh, for a job. You might go to have something done. When I was in, uh, young, they used to have people at college would type for people, right? They, they were professional typers, and you'd pay them you know, a dollar a page, and then you'd do your report. And those people would type all day very quickly, and they'd make some errors, but they got the job done. That would be equivalent to the, the Greek scribes. They were people that just did stuff, and they wrote very quickly, and so they're writing either in very small letters, all like this, or they're writing in very big letters, all like this, okay? And no spacing, and they would just write. And eventually you'd have an error. Now, if you look at this first sentence, and I wrote this to you, are you going to have any problem with knowing what I'm writing to you? Nope. No, because anybody can look at that one error and they can say, I know that he just made an error, and it says I owe you a million dollars. But that's an error. Okay, we're going to count that as one error. Now, there's 5,686 Greek manuscripts. The next one you read says this. And we see that there's a W here, and this one here says this. This one is a W, this one is a W. We know that that's an error, right? It's very simple. We don't have to go any further to know that, plus the context tells us, all right? And then you get to this one. Oh, this guy has an error. But this one matches, and this one. This is what some people do with their lives. They spend their entire life going through Greek manuscripts and comparing them. And so we get closer and closer and closer to the original every time somebody does this. And then what happens? They find more Greek manuscripts. They find 10 or 12 every single year, and they compare those. And this is all they do with their lives. That's all they do. And then there are um, uh, known as lectionaries, 14,000 lectionaries, which are like written sermons on the New Testament. And you can um, reconstruct the entire New Testament, the entire New Testament, minus 11 verses with just those lectionaries just 11 verses. So we have a sure word. It's not like we're missing a sure word. Now what comes in is you get, um, as I quoted, the NU text. It's uh, Nestle, Alan, whatever. That's the NU text is the Alexandrian. That's what the NIV is based on in the NASB, most modern Bibles. And they say this is more accurate. The reason why is because it's older than the oldest Byzantine manuscripts. Older doesn't always mean better. Okay? So that's kind of a, a fallacy of thinking. But you have the Byzantine, all right? 
That's the Byzantine. This is the Alexandrian. That's from Egypt, and then this is from the Byzantine uh, side of it. You've got these different manuscripts that people say, well, this one is better, this one is better, but they still check them. So even between them, they're going to find out what is the closest rendering. But whether you hold to this or whether you hold to this, there is no difference in doctrine, in the core doctrines of the Bible. None. And so do you understand there is a science that is built up on this, and so your question can be answered. You just have to do the research, and you have to say, here, if you don't believe you know, that the Bible is without error, read this. And most people aren't willing to do that. They're not willing to go through this type of a study in order to understand what they're reading. They're either going to accept this or they're going to reject it. And i got to tell you what, if I read the NIV or if I read the King James Version or if I read any other Bible that is properly translated, I will find Jesus. I will find Jesus. Now later, I'm going to start being more studious. I'm going to say, why is this error in the King James Version? I know that that's wrong because blah, blah, blah. I'm going to be studious about it, and I'm going to determine what is the correct rendering. I talked about some of them on Sunday. The, you know, the word um, gods in the Old Testament. There's a, a plural verb, and if you don't believe me, Sergio's watching right now. Just email him. Say, Sergio, what does it say? Because he and his wife speak Hebrew. They can go back and they can read and say, yeah, that says God's all right. doesn't say God. Anyway, why did the translators choose God instead of God's? is because they, they, they didn't understand what the context was. And I didn't explain that, so let me explain that really quickly. I didn't give you the background of why God's is correct in Genesis, um, where it says, Abraham said that God's caused me to wander. Every English translation of the Bible that I have read, every one of them says, and God caused me to wander. It's saying that God, he, what they do is they say, well, God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. Right? And so God caused him to wander. That's not what he was saying. He was saying, the gods caused me to wander. And what does that mean? The gods of Ur of the Chaldees were not appropriate for Abraham. And so God told him, get out of your country. The false gods caused him to wander. And we know that's true because in Joshua, and I think it's, let me see if I can find it very quickly and I might not be able to. Joshua confirms it. It says, your fathers worshipped gods across the river. It was the gods who caused him to wander. It was God who was the active one that told him, now you go. But the gods, the false gods, caused him to wander. And so that is why that is an incorrect translation, why the Hebrew is correct. The same thing happens in the book of, um, I'm sorry, Genesis, where um, uh, Joshua, I'm sorry, um, Jacob is, um, uh, something is happening in Genesis 32. It happens again in 2 Samuel. When there's a plural verb with the word Elohim, it's to be rendered gods. But people get scared and they say, well, I better translate this God because my theology says it's not right. You have to think it through. And when you think those Hebrew writings through, because they were so meticulous, we know that it's correct that the error is not in the Hebrew, it is in the translator. Okay. Anyway, so there you go. That's just one example. I, I didn't explain that during the prophecy update because I would have been here as long as I am right now. But we don't have an error-filled Bible. We have a sure Bible because men of God have been pursuing this since the beginning. And every time a scribe makes an error, there is somebody there to come along and say that's an error. And we need to make sure that we get that corrected in this translation. The, the longer they do this study, the closer we are getting back to the original word of God because we can check all of those manuscripts and we can come to it. But it's hard work. It takes 
people's lifetimes to get through that type of stuff. But it's interesting. This is the kind of stuff that I love because the more I study this type of thing, the more sure I am that God's word is perfect. Right. This All is right? the fabric of the people. fabric. And, and and when you look that down that deep, you know it's like okay, there, there's very little here that you have to question. There's very little, to, very well, little that you have listen, to question. That's right. But you want to question everything. As I said, if you don't question everything, then you are blindly accepting somebody's... Uh, once you've determined this is the Word of God, then you question you know, the, the details and how does this apply this way and this way. But before you say, I accept that this is the Word of God, you should read it and you should say, does this really speak to me? Because as I said, if you say to a Muslim, this is the Word of God, they're going to say, well, I've got the Word of God. And they've been t told exactly what you've been told about the Bible. Now you have to read both and study to show yourself approved, and only one of them is going to bear the weight of God. It's this one. Okay, um, going on. Did you want that Joshua thing? You said yeah, Joshua. go ahead. I, it's Joshua 24 3, I think. It's jo 24 3. Oh, Joshua 24 3. Do you have it open? Joshua said to the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, From ancient times your fathers shall live beyond the river. Yep. Namely, Terah, the father of Abraham. Nahor, and they served other gods. And they served other gods. And who was the son of Terah? Abraham. Abraham. There you go. So they're, absolutely, they served other gods. The gods caused me to wander. The Bible explains itself in that case. Sometimes it's a little more complicated, and the other one I probably couldn't do off the top of my head. But you could go back and watch that sermon. You can say, oh, now I understand why it says gods instead of God. All right? There is always a reason why the Lord has chosen these things. And one of the things that is, to me, it's hugely sad. I hate to get off on these tangents because we haven't been in Romans very much. But one of the things that just, it really bothers me is in the Bible, there are a certain number of times, it says Elohim like 3,000 times in the Old Testament. But a certain number of times, whether it's 100 or 200, I used to know the number and I can't remember right now. It says Ha Elohim, the God. All right, there's an article in front of it. And no translation, no translations translates it. And yet every time it says Ha Elohim, when I do a study on it, it makes a major difference in what God is telling you in that sermon. Every time. I'm so surprised that they don't translate that word because it's a definite article. It's there for a reason. He has said the God for a reason. No translation that I have read includes that except the original Hebrew. And that's why doing a sermon, you have to go to the original if you are going to understand Holy, what God is telling you, and it opens up just like a flower. It is so wonderful to see. Go anyway, read my Bible. I got these written in there. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Because uh, every time, every time it says Ha Elohim, I try to highlight that in the sermon because I want you to know that that's what it says. And now here's the reason. And sometimes I sit there and I struggle, maybe for twenty or thirty or forty minutes. Why does it say that? Because there is a reason. And eventually, bang, it comes into there. But there's a reason. Okay, we got to go on. Um, all mouths will be stopped before him, and every tongue will be silenced. In the end, all people deserve God's hand of wrath and condemnation, but because of his great love with which he has loved us, we shall receive mercy if we come to the cross in the precious shed blood of Jesus. All right, a little life application for you. Are you willing to gain greater light, which will potentially increase your guilt before God? That's a scary thought. I mean... Tom Alley comes to Bible class, right? He usually sleeps under the chairs, but when he's up, he's getting more light. Now, he is more, he's, he, he is more accountable before God than he was before he came to Bible class. Right, yeah. Anybody that's attending online right now is learning something about the Bible, okay? More from Burke than from me, but they're learning something about the Bible. 
Okay? They now have more light. But with that more light comes more responsibility and more accountability before God. And if you're willing to take that chance and say, now that I understand I have to do this thing and do it, then there's more reward, right? So it goes both ways. Because if you just become a, a, a Christian and spend your whole life doing nothing for the Lord, you haven't gained anything, but you certainly haven't lost anything if you, you're you just in the same state you were the moment you were saved, in other words. You're just a saved guy that's on, on the road to uh, heaven. But to gain that light goes both ways, but it is, it, it's the rewards you want to think about. Okay, so let's go on. Um, it is a scary thought, but the only acceptable answer for the follower of Jesus is yes. It is unthinkable that we would want to keep ourselves from knowing God in all of his fullness just because we're scared of what we might learn about our own fallen state. Instead, when we learn more, we need to have our faith and our actions coincide with our greater knowledge. Everybody here should have that in mind is that I want to know Christ more. I want to know his word more. I want to know the details of his word by reading the footnotes and understanding why this says what it says. Because the footnotes, I, I, I'll say it a million times, that is where the gold of the Bible is. The, the, I am talking about the study gold. I'm not talking about the gold of the word. I'm talking about where understanding what is going on in this word is. Because when they put a footnote in there, it's usually for a very good reason. It's for a reason that they're highlighting to you something that is unusual. Maybe I can find one really quickly in Zechariah. I don't know if this Bible is going to to uh, announce it, but this is something that, that if I can find it, let me see here. Um, uh, they will look on me whom they have pierced. Let me see if I can find that, and I'll see if they footnote it here. Um, what's that? Twelve. Twelve. Okay, I knew it was right in that area. Um, <clears throat> let's see here, and I will pour it on that. They will look on him. Um, okay, they don't have it, but. Um, Verse 10 of 12, Zechariah 12, 10. And I will pour on the house of David, <clears throat> excuse me, and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him. So it changes from first person to third person as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Well, guess what? There is what's known as a margin note. I told you about that on some of the manuscripts. And it says the Hebrew here makes no sense. Maybe it should be rendered this way. Guess which way the Jehovah's Witnesses translate it? They go with the margin note. It doesn't make any sense to them, and so they say, well, we're just going to go with this, this margin note. And the Jews, guess what they will tell you? They will say, well, the margin note says because it doesn't make any sense, and so somebody was astute enough. In other words, they don't want to see Jesus. They don't want to see the truth of the word, but the word is sure. There's no uh, margin note saying there is another text which says this is wrong. There's just a margin note that says, well, this doesn't make any sense, okay? There's a difference. If there are five texts and three of them say this and one of them says this and one of them says this, probably the three are right, okay? This one was changed for this reason and this one was changed for this reason. But if there's just a margin note saying this doesn't make any sense, it doesn't help you with anything. But that's what people will do, is they will take that margin note and they'll run with it in order to hide what is obvious, what God is telling us. I am Jehovah, and I am going to step out of the eternal realm, and I'm going to become a man. Right there in the Old Testament, yes? It doesn't make any sense to us because the foolishness of God is wise. That's right. Until you come to Christ, you can't understand that. But once you know who Jesus is, then it makes all the sense in the world. Oh, Jehovah of the Old Testament is going to hang on a cross. He's going to be pierced. And that's why it changes from first person to third person. Yeah, exactly right. Okay, 215. Since they show 
that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. Okay, now mine says it just a little different, not much. Who show the work of the law written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing. So they're very close. Um, uh, let's see here, and that was speaking of the Gentiles of the previous verse, okay? Paul states it as an axiom that when people by nature do the things which are found in the law, even though they don't have the law, they show the work of the law written in their hearts. That's as obvious as it can be. It's a validation that we know intuitively, although we exercise this in various de varying degrees of actual adherence. Everybody out there is, knows that it's wrong to murder, right? And if somebody is a murderer, does he just go out, and I'm not talking about psychopaths or you know other religions that condone this type of thing, but I'm talking about a person that wants to murder another person. Are they just gonna walk out in the street and murder that person normally? No. They're going to go in the dark of night, or they're going to set up a plot, or they're going to hire somebody else, and they're going to say, "Don't do any, don't tell anybody," because they know what they're doing is wrong, and they know that there will be consequences for it. That is the SOP. Now, as I said, there are certain people that are are you know have no consciences. There are some people that want to go to jail because you get free food there, and then you know I was thinking about that. Uh, if you saw my post on Facebook, the picture of the guy with his two daughters, and then the mother gave her a kiss, and they sent him off, and they blew up their children and killed a bunch of people with little seven-year-old girls. Mm -hmm. They strapped bombs on him, and they sent him in, and, and uh, they detonated him. This is just a couple days ago, right? Why didn't Dad do that? Cowards. Yeah, coward, right? He's got something written on his, his own conscience that says that this is wrong, and I'm not going to do it because I know that this is my one chance at life, and so I'm going to take somebody else, and I'm going to use them as my force of destruction. And what a perverse person that would send his own children and mom kissing them goodbye. Goodbye, babies. Have a nice blow up. And it's just disgusting. It's, it, it is absolutely disgusting. It's a vile, <laughs> wicked thing that they do. But we, we keep importing them into this country. And we keep doing it. And he's speeding it up right now. He's speeding it up. And he's getting rid of several laws just in the past 24 hours that were there to protect us. After 9-11, he's getting rid of them for Muslims. Right? Why? So that they can do exactly what we're seeing in that, that post that I posted. It's because that's what this person wants. He wants to see the end of the society that we live in. And because we know that these things are wrong intuitively. We know that they're wrong. But they want to have dominance in their own perverse theology. And that's what it is. It's a perverse theology. What does the woman get this, the Muslim woman? I have, the man gets the... Well, you know, it, what they do, they're supposed to get 72 virgins, but, you know, we know that's not true. But anyway, um, uh, they, they have actually written fatwas. A fatwa is an imam can write something and say that this is now Islamic law. So they make stuff up and they say that women get a free pass here or they get this or that. So they, they just make stuff up. And it's just like any cult in the world. I can say something and people will believe it and I've got them in bondage, right? That is... That is how that religious system works. They just write stuff that they want. They make a fatwa and they say that if you do this, you're going to get this. No proof, no substantiation, but people don't think. They just trust, and that's the worst place to be. Anyway, um, 215, um, Paul states, I already read that. Um, the fact that we display these moral convictions shows that there must be an ultimate standard on which they're being compared. If you have people that are making moral judgments and they're all doing it based on 
uh, you know, uh, murder, then there must be an ultimate standard of that precept. There must be, if you just think it through. It can't come out of the sky or out of thin air. It has to come from somewhere. Though we may err in our reasoning about a moral issue, the moral standard does exist. Showing that this code is ingrained in their hearts, as Paul says, their conscience then works with or against their actions. It bears witness to what they actually do. That's what the conscience is there for. The Bible gives us insight into man's conscience in several ways. Okay, In John 8, 9, it says, Those who faced Jesus' pronouncement about being the first to stone the adulterous women, woman were convicted in their conscience. Right? Okay, it is a tool of conviction. That's the first way. Our conscience is a tool of conviction. In Romans 13, verse 5, we are told to be subject to rulers, not only because of their wrath if we disobey, but for conscience sake. That's right. It is a rule and a guide within a societal framework because God ordains rulers of societies. Okay? So that's the second one. The first is it's a tool for right moral living, and then it's a guide work within society. If you have a perverse leader, then the society will degrade with that perverse leader. We've seen that hugely on display in the past eight years. Hugely on display. Because society will gravitate towards its leaders, and if that leader is doing right, they will tend to do right after him. And back and forth it goes. Okay, next one. In 1 Corinthians 8, 7 through 12, Paul notes that believers can have a weak conscience. This comes from a lack of knowledge about the truth of God's word. Here's our third precept. It is a part of man which must be corrected and strengthened through study and through prayer. If you have a weak conscience, there's only one way to strengthen it. Because if you don't strengthen it in this way, you're going to strengthen it in this way. And that's why people convert to Islam and they go blow people up. Is because their conscience has been redirected. That is what's going on in our conscience. A weak conscience has to be trained properly. And that's why it says in the book of, um, where is it? Train up your child in the way of the Lord, and when he is older, Proverbs, he will not depart from it. They have to have their weak because children don't have the same conscience as an adult. They have to have it trained properly. If you don't train it properly, you have a society full of people with improper morals. Hence, the last eight years, it is snowballed. It's been growing for 40 years, but it is snowballed in the last eight years. We have cry rooms. We have, uh, what do we call it, puppy petting in college. We've got all of these things because people have not been morally trained in their consciences. We've got people converting their sex at the age of seven years old now, all around the world, because that has been trained into their conscience. Okay, it is a tool. It's a part of man which must be corrected. Okay, in 1 Timothy 3, verse 9, Paul tells Timothy to have a pure conscience. Okay, this would be living fully and completely within the ordinances of God and according to the word he has given. So right conscience is an attainable asset. If you have a pure conscience, it means that you're doing it in accord with the word. Where do you get that? Right here. If you're not living it in accord with this, then you're living it in accord with something else. But if you're living it in accord with this, then it is an attainable asset. You didn't have it, you open it and you read it, and now you have it. Okay? Uh, next one. Um, where was that? An attainable asset. Okay? Um, uh, and the next one. In, following, in the following chapter, 1 Timothy 4 verse 2 tells us that those who reject God's truth can actually incur a 
Seared conscience. Thank you. It is something that can be completely twisted or even eradicated. So think of the child. He has an undeveloped conscience. He's taught wrong. Then he can, and we can do that. We can train into children wickedness. We can train into children righteousness. It all comes based on the conscience, okay? And if you keep training in wickedness, you keep turning from God, you have a seared conscience and nothing bothers you anymore, okay? And then in Titus 1.15, Paul speaks of those who are corrupted and they have a defiled conscience. Mm -hmm. So it is something that when misused can produce ungodliness and immorality. Hence the last eight years again. You can see perfectly how the conscience is something that God gave us that can be cultivated, it can be developed, it can be used within the framework to uh, build up a society or tear down a society, on and on and on. The conscience is what Paul is directing his thoughts to here. These and many other examples, and I only pulled out a few of those, they are all, you type in the word conscience when you get home, or if you're online, make a note to do that. Type in the word conscience and read every single instance where it's recorded, and you won't believe it. Just say, how is God trying to instruct me on the word conscience? Like I said, I picked, what, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. There's probably another eight or ten that are actually valid precepts that you could get out of this. Okay? Um, it, 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 those examples in Scripture show us that the conscience is a powerful tool to be used in accordance with God's word, or it will work against it. When exercised without God's word... The conscience of man, like his emotions, is one of the most uncertain faculties that he possesses. I brought that up in the Prophecy Update on Sunday. People base their theology on emotions. The King James Version is the only version of the Bible, and you're going to hell because you're not reading it. Or they do it with you know, this doctrine, or they'll, they'll pick a certain doctrine, and they'll make a, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a new um, denomination out of it out of some little doctrine that they have a pet peeve, and all of a sudden you have a denomination based on this emotion, on this issue, not in any way based on the Word of God. If you base your theology on emotions, you will always, always err, always, because the emotions, like the conscience, are the weakest and shallowest parts of the man unless they are properly developed. Your emotions develop them towards God. Then when you're spouse dies or when you're you know something bad you lose your job you will be able to take your emotions and direct them to god instead of saying oh god right you are able to talk with them and say i know this has a good purpose i know this has a reason that's what that's for okay let's go on um um Charlie, you probably yes. don't have a knaves bible do you a what knaves knaves never heard of it <laughs> what is the name you're in the computer age it was topical, you, just like you said, conscience. You oh, 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 oh! Yes, I've heard of that. And it listed them all up for you. Oh, that's great. That is, <laughs> I got to tell you, that would be a great asset. You want to just do a word study, but nowadays you just got the computer, and like I you know, said, it, type I, in conscience, and it just tells I, you. I just figured that you. No, I don't. But I, I will tell you, I bet you that Naves has this type of information that I didn't have to sit down and think about. It probably says the conscience, and then he gives you thoughts on that word. Is that oh, what it does? Do. Oh, good. See, that would make it a lot easier. If you had a knaves, then you could just copy that and make your uh, daily devotional, and you'd There's be done. There probably isn't three other people in here that has a knaves. No, we've well, several from Tom. 
or Strong's. Yeah, Strong's, yeah. Strong's I still keep this. Yeah, but names gives you more uh, yeah, detail. A word study. Yeah. yeah. Now, I use Strong's once in a while, but usually only when the computer is down. You know, I, I, you know things like that. I, I, I have all these reference materials, but I, I don't use them because you can get them right online. But anyway, where was I? Um, if not reined in, it will become as seared as Paul describes, and the person will move so far away from right morality that they become completely defiled. This is a state called total, total depravity and complete enmity with God, striving against him on every moral issue. Okay, life application for you. Are you seeking to align your moral compass with God's word? If so, then you must first know God's word and then allow your conscience to lead you to right moral actions and convict you of incorrect ones. If you just allow your conscience to guide you without God's word, you're going to err. You're going to stray. That's, there's no other way about it. You have to know God's word in order to have your emotions and your conscience aligned with God. Okay. When this is properly affected, you will be living fully and completely within the ordinances of God. That's why he's given us this word. When Paul, Paul doesn't command us usually, very rarely. Normally, he gives us what's called a exhortation. He exhorts you to right living. He exhorts you to holiness. He exhorts you to love one another. He exhorts you. He's not commanding you. He's saying, I am asking you to do this for your sake. And why would he do that? It's because you're not going to lose your salvation if you don't do what he said. You're not going to lose your salvation. Instead, you're going to lose your joy. You're going to lose your wife. You're going to lose your job. You're going to lose your liver, whatever. You're going to lose something by not living for God properly. And so he exhorts you to live for God. Yes. Psalms 51, David says, restore to me the joy, joy of, thy of thy salvation. Yeah. That's right. That's it. Restore to me the joy of thy salvation. Said, I mean, we would, you know, flog him to death, you know. That's right. <laughs> That's right. 100%. Okay, 216. <laughs> Third one. Third one today. We're burning it up. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Okay. Um, what does mine say? In the day when God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Very close. Okay. They just reword it so that they don't plagiarize each other. But okay. This verse ties directly back to verse 12, as you noted earlier, the parentheses. So you got verse 12, for as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. Verse 16, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Okay? Everyone's so, accountable. Everyone is accountable. And what does he say? We're going to read it one more time from verse 12. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. Who was without law? Gentiles. Gentiles. Yeah. They sinned, all have sinned, and all fall short of the glory of God. All will perish apart from the law. And then as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. God pulled out one select group of people, and then he said, I'm going to do something with you. I'm going to uh, make you my people, and I'm going to lead you along this path. And if they sin within the law, they will be judged by that law. It may be in this life, it may be in the next life, it may be both, okay? But if they have sinned, they will be judged by that law. That is the light that they have been given, and that is the light which they will be judged by. They were given the covering by the Day of Atonement. It forgave them of their sins, but at the same time, it did not take away their sin. 
It just simply covered over the sin. The sin in the person remained, and as I explained one or two weeks ago, how do they know that? Because they had to come back the next year and do it again. Their sin was not taken away. Their sins were forgiven, but their overall state of sin was not taken away. Only in Christ does that happen. Our sin is removed as far as it is from the east, from the west. Not counting men's sins against them, right? He's not counting our sins against us. What he is counting us for is rewards for living for him. Our sins are not counted against us. I wish people could understand that. It's almost like a reinsertion of the law when they keep saying, if you don't do this, you're going to lose your salvation. How can I lose my salvation if man, God is not counting my sins against me? How is it possible? If my sins are under the blood of Jesus Christ, how can I lose my salvation? Anybody here? Anybody hold to that doctrine where you can lose your salvation? Because if you do, I would like to hear how that's possible. He's not counting man's sins against him. What he is doing is he's counting us for rewards and for losses. That's it. Anyway. People get thrown off with that. (sighs) And I can almost, in fact, probably at one point in time, I probably thought that way. Yeah. Okay, great. I'm saved. But you know what? I still screwed up. Right. So I can't be saved. I'm probably... How can you have saved me? I'm unsaved, and and that's what you asked about, or we talked about it at Mission Work. Remember we were talking about that on Saturday? That's exactly what he said. Do I have to confess my sins? Well, actually, according to the Bible, no, because your sins are already forgiven. But me, I do because I carry the burden of my sins every time I do something stupid. Every time I think, Lord, I'm so sorry. Him through his word... The more you your want, conscience will tell you, will tell that, you that you know, you've done wrong, and right, so I just right, so. I, I know I'm forgiven, but I still ask forgiveness, and so I, it, that's probably a weakness on me. But I, you know what? I will carry my weakness with me. I want the Lord to know how sorry I am for the things I do wrong. Anyway, so that's just what we happen to talk about. And when we're on mission work together, as we get in all kinds of fun talks, and uh, and uh, then we have IHOP afterward. Uh, I've got to tell this. I'm going to tell this how good God is. I've already told it to uh, Todd, and then I told it to Burke when they came in. But um, I'll tell it to the people online so that they can hear how good God is. Every week, I pick up scrap metal on the side of the road on garbage day. You know, and it just, it, I, I, I got to pick up truck, and I hate to see stuff go out to the dump. They're going to take it out anyway. It's not illegal in Sarasota County to do this. It is illegal to go into the recycle bins. You can't do that. But if there's just garbage sitting on the side of the road or stereo or whatever, so I pick it up every week and then I, I separate it. I take out the copper and the brass and the stainless and I separate everything. And um, every week, whatever I have, that goes for paying for the lunch for all of us at IHOP, right? And this week, after one week of scrapping, I got $61 when I went down to, to um, uh, scrap all on. And I showed these guys the receipt. I think maybe I didn't. I, but did. Then, I did. Okay, I proved it. I got $61. And our bill, because we had two extra people that we normally don't have, was $60.96. So I had a four-cent bonus when I went home, dropped them in the thing. Can you imagine how good the Lord is that he would do that? And that happens time and again, where I, it, whatever we need, he just supplies on the side of the road. And, you know, an old brass um, lamp that somebody throws away, I might get $2 for that. And I, I will tell you, though, if you scrap, if you're online... And for you that didn't hear this, I will tell you this because it's worth telling you. I, I get washing machines and dryers and stuff. People just put them out there. And, and some of them work. Some of them don't. But if they don't, I, I take them apart. I, I take all the sheet metal off and I bend it up into a little package. And I take out all of the uh, copper wire. And inside of a washing machine is a stainless steel drum. It's not regular steel. 
and I took a washing machine this week, and I started taking it apart, and I worked on it. And I, the more I'm working, the more I'm saying, I've got to do this because I'm going to lose all the time if I don't do this. I spent about three, maybe three and a half hours just to get that drum out, and I got $2 for it. <laughs> I, but I kept saying, in for a penny, in for a pound, and these guys were laughing at me behind the mall. They're just like, you know, they're, they come up, and what are you doing? I'm getting this out. I'm going to get it. It's not worth it. But you know what? Hey, that, that, that adamant behavior got just enough to pay for perfectly the lunch. So the Lord is good. Uh, anyway, I just, you know, if I got free time, which is very rare, that's what I do. I, I, I get my mind off of everything else, and I just go and stand behind the truck and take stuff apart. Anyway, here we go. Um, verse 16. Um, this verse ties directly back to verse 12, which I read you. The intervening verses fill the thought out for us to comprehend the full extent of what the two surrounding verses state. Okay? It's parenthetical. That's what that means. Every person will be judged according to the amount of revealed light they have received. All right? At Paul's time, it was Jew and Gentile, the Holy Scriptures, and natural law, order and conscience, deeds for self or deeds of faith, and so on. And we've talked about deeds of faith already. Deeds that are done that have no faith behind it, faith in Christ, are no good. You get nothing for it. And the example I gave you, and I'll give it again so you get a brain squiggle, is um, uh, Microsoft. Bill, Bill Gates. Billions and billions of dollars, maybe. I don't know how much he's given for AIDS research. Nothing. He gets no rewards because they are not deeds of faith. All right? If they're not faith in Christ, God doesn't care because he already owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Everything is his. It doesn't matter what we do. We're walking around trying to please ourselves and not God. And okay. the taters in those hills. And the what? And the, and the taters in them hills as well. That's right. And that's a lot of taters. Um, so, deeds uh, for self or deeds of faith and so on. These will be considered and judgment will be rendered. Okay? It needs to be noted again that although there are two categories flowing from Paul's pen, Jew and Gentile, there is now the church and the complete canon of Scripture. This is a sobering thought for us to consider. We now have a much fuller extent of God's revelation and are therefore more accountable for what we know. Imagine the guilt of a professor of biblical theology in a modern university who has and who teaches both testaments of the Bible and yet discounts what he teaches as one of many other paths to God. They know the Bible. They spent their whole life learning Hebrew and Greek they know the Bible in and out better than many of us do, and yet they say, well, this is just one path to God. Imagine the punishment awaiting that person. Imagine it. I, I, I can't even contemplate why somebody would be so perverse as to spend their life to learn theology and then to not believe it. Why do that? What a waste of a life. I spend my whole life to learn wastewater treatment. That's all I want to know is wastewater treatment, and I never treat wastewater. What good was it? What good was your life? I tell you what, I think often, and if I don't get my um, CEUs done in a month, I'm going to lose my licenses. And, you know, if whatever happens, I'll be out working at 7-Eleven. But that is a very valuable license I have, and I have not had time to do it. Okay? But it's something I love doing. Is I love treating wastewater. It's very, very <laughs> interesting job. You do math. You do biology. You do um, uh, chemistry. chemistry every single day. It is a wonderful job. But I'd rather do this. So, you know, if I Amen. lose those licenses, i got to tell you what, I'm going to have to make sure that I don't blow it because I want to keep doing this. Can you take those CEUs online? Online, yes. 
So, you know, I just, I've got to get myself, I said I was going to start on Tuesday, and I don't know what happened, but I didn't. Sleep is highly overrated. The what? Sleep is Oh, sleep is way overrated. That's true. Uh, you know, I wake up, I have not used an alarm clock in years and years and years, and I am up at the same time every single day. I, as a matter of fact, 421 is one I set in my mind, and I'm usually up before that, and I just wait till 421 and I get out. But this morning I got out of bed. I said, I'm giving you five minutes, Lord. Actually, it was six because I got up at 415 and got out. But um, uh, it, it just... Sleep is overrated, but I need it. Um, okay, anyway. Yeah, most of us do. Okay, um, two categories, Jew and Gentile. There's now the church and the complete canon of Scripture. I said that. Uh, we have both testaments of the Bible. Um, and then I talked about the, the guy that thinks that uh, it's just one of many paths to God. Or this is just another ancient text written by man. Such an individual would be judged in the most severe way for diminishing the glory of which he was an especially important steward. They, you know, it, they're telling these children, these young skulls full of mush, as Rush would say, something derogatory about the Word of God. All of these things will be evaluated in the day when God judges the secrets of men, as Paul says. The Bible, in numerous verses, reveals that God searches the hearts and the minds of man. It also states that again and again, God will judge the people. Okay? Tying the two thoughts together supports what Paul states here. Judgment is, is not only based on deed, but thought and intent as well. Right? Your thought and your intent is just as important as deed quite often because that is what you're, you're aligning yourself with. The people in Israel, uh, the book of Isaiah starts with this, chapter 1. Don't bring me any more sacrifices. Their deeds were being done, but their thoughts and intents were not right with the Lord. So he's checking the whole package of us. Um, God said they would just putrefying to him. He that's right. It. That's totally unacceptable sacrifices. And Don't I, bring me I any more. I had another study with a couple of times. Anyway, the one guy in there who had a professor at school fed him all this stuff, and we'll go over some passage and it, well, this is, and he's out in left field with this thing, and I says. Who, who, where did you get this? Oh, the professor at school. Terrible. So the guy's now saved. Right. But he's still got that memory of what he'd been taught. That's why I say it is very hard to change one's theology. It is very hard. That guy that I mentioned earlier that actually gave up on tithing, that took a giant leap for him because he was taught his whole life tithing. Even when he's shown black and white, don't do this, his brain already has that squiggle. He thinks it's correct, but it is incorrect. You are reintroducing the law. It is very hard. To, that's why there's an R.C. Sproul with replacement, uh, or yeah, replacement theology, and that's why there's a um, Charles Ryrie with dispensationalism. They're both very intelligent men. Only one of them is right, or neither, but they both can't be right. Okay, so the Bible in numerous uh, verses reveals that God searches. I said that. Um, oh, Ecclesiastes twelve fourteen gives us one one of many tastes of being judged not only by deed, but intent as well. Ecclesiastes 12, right, so right at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes. Yep, Ecclesiastes, I want to read it just so we have it exactly as it's written. It says, uh, I'll, I'll go to verse 13. Let us consider uh, here the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing whether good or evil. So even the secret things, the Lord knows. 
Okay, um, let's see here. The uh, ancient Greek writer Sophocles, who lived almost 500 years before Christ and outside of the covenant people of Israel, wrote these words, confirming that there is a written code which men have in their hearts and that God is therefore just in judging the secrets of men. Here's what he said. Not now, nor yesterday, but evermore. These laws have lived. No, nor know we whence they came. He said the laws have always been there, and we have no idea where they came. Well, I can tell you where they came from. They came from the Creator God. But he said that knowing that there was a standard that everybody understood, right in their minds. General revelation. General revelation, that's right. We are being observed, evaluated, and our deeds, hidden and open, are being noted for the day of God's judgment. And the final portion of that process will be, as it says right here, by Jesus Christ. The Bible reveals with no uncertainty, such as in Acts 17.31. Let me read you this really quickly before we go back. Acts 17, verse 31 says, um, Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man who he has ordained, he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So Acts 17.31, that he is the one to whom all judgment has been granted. All right? God has every right to judge his creatures, but how much more when he participated in his creation? He came and lived among us, so we are all the more guilty because of that. And then how much more, I, um, yeah, how much more when his creatures have rejected his participation? Mm-hmm. And somebody emailed me, it's just in distress. <clears throat> I feel so bad for him. He... Uh, witness to somebody I didn't know it was online at, at first but um, he said that you know Jesus is the only way and he said he just tore into him and he, he was literally crushed he says I, 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 I'm literally crushed by this and I said expect it and then I found out that it was online the next day I realized that and I said expect that all the time yeah. because people yeah, can yeah, hide yeah, behind yeah. their fingertips yeah. and they yeah. p- people become abusive and they become people that they would never be in public but I said, you, you have to expect this. You have to expect the people. And why? He's done everything. That's the thing that's so puzzling, is he's done everything. There is nothing that we have to do except say, I believe it. And people don't want that. And instead, they just they, they will find every reason to fight against him. So he has come. He has uh, participated with us. Jesus Christ, the God-man, will stand in judgment because he, too, stood in judgment. If his own creature sentenced him while he was innocent... How much more just is his judgment over their guilt? All of this is ensured to us, as Paul says, according to my gospel. We have five more minutes. Paul is not claiming authority to the gospel as if he is the author. Instead, he is claiming authority to it as the herald of the author's message. His commission stands directly from the words of Jesus in Acts 9.15. There Jesus states, He, Paul, is my chosen, is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name, before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. So it's Paul's message because it is the message of the one who selected him. This then places Paul in opposition to any false gospel. And I wish people would understand that because especially the Hebrew Roots movement are always trying to undermine Paul, always. They dismiss him, they ignore him. He is the one that is selected by Christ to reveal to us the church age doctrine, Paul. And yet, if you stand against him, you are standing against Jesus' will. One plus one is two. All right? 
um, just as was the prophets of old. If they were the selected prophet of God and they could prove it by their prophetic message, which was one of the requirements, and somebody stood against them, then they stood against the Lord because he represented the Lord. An ambassador represents the country of the person in charge. That's right, the sending country. If you harm him, then you are harming that country. That's why when I was in Malaysia, I carried a black passport. I had a diplomatic passport. And they could do nothing to me. No thing. I, everywhere I walked, I was the United States of America. They could do nothing to me. And the United States Embassy, if somebody came in there, they were on United States property because you are a representative of that country. You have nothing to do with the country that you're in except the fact that you're in there. And that is what an ambassador is. And that's what Paul was. Paul says, I am an ambassador in chains. He's in chains. Doesn't make sense for an ambassador to be in chains. And he was showing you the paradoxical nature of his work. Anyway, we'll go on. I got to finish this. Uh, yeah, we got just one more minute. Um, let's see here. Um, life application. It is sobering to know that every thought that we have and everything we have done is known to God, isn't it? I mean, it scares me all the time. <laughs> and that we are accountable to Him for these things. For this reason, we are told to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Let each of us both strive for this individually and also remind others of this when the need arises. In other words, if you're with a brother and they're not doing something they should be doing or a sister, remind them because that's our job to do. So we're done. We're in uh, 217, which I need to get a pen and highlight that before we get done. But, oh, thank you. Exactly what I need right there. So um, seeing as how you threw the pen, you get to close us in prayer. All right. Yay. <laughs> A little out of breath from all that reading tonight. Yeah. You, Three verses. You did it. Wow. You made it through it. Lord Jesus, thank you, Lord, for, uh, for this class. Thank you for Charlie's um, uh, desire and uh, accuracy in digging into your word. And Lord, just um, um, may we just understand it to the point that, uh, one, we know you. Two, we know this is true. And three, we can mm. we'll have stones thrown at, thrown at us. We'll have people make us... Uh, Walter, but uh, Lord, we know that the closer we get through your word, Lord, uh, there's plenty of prayers and concerns here in the building and elsewhere, the internet, and Lord, just um, uh, we lay those prayers at your feet. We know your will is perfect. We know that uh, all your prayers are answered, even if uh, no and wait answers to any prayers, Lord. May we just know that your will is mm-hmm. in better than anything you could imagine. Or just um, we praise you endlessly. Thankful for the last breath we took and thank all the way up the fact that you did come. Paid the price for our simple path. Just know that we pray all this through your son. Amen. 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 Thank you, thank you. Okay, let me put this back and then we'll say goodbye to these folks. Are you stealing my pen book? Uh, Oh, no, it's right there. But you're right, I could have. It's on live. I need to push break. And we'll let this baby go back. And there we go. Let's say goodbye to these folks. Have a wonderful evening. We love all of you. Take care. Lotar's going to love the fact you got his bandana. I know, the bandana. Again. Yeah, well, I explained why I do that is because um, I only wear it for two hours on Sunday. And I figure, you know, I, normally if I wear a bandana all day, that's eight hours. So I can get a second use out of it. Uh-huh. And then after that, then I'm done. So you see the same one on my head uh, 
uh, twice. But, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Goes in, yeah, I do the laundry on Friday, so it'll go in there. But uh, okay, I can turn this baby off, and uh, got that, and we got this. All right.